a daily digest of the who, what, and why of Waterloo Region. Welcome to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Here's special guest host, Ian McLean. Well, good afternoon and welcome. This is Kitchener Today, and I am your guest host for today, Ian McLean, President and CEO of the Greater Kitchen Waterloo Chamber of Commerce. We've got a great show today. Producer Polly and uh, executive producer Brittany Barlone have got... Uh, Got some great guests lined up for us. We're going to be joined in just a minute by Dr. Winnie Lee, and she's the interim chief of staff at Cambridge Memorial Hospital, the chief of diagnostic imagery, uh, imaging. I always get that wrong, um, but we'll uh, be joined by her in just a minute. But later in the show, we're going to be joined by Ontario Liberal leader uh, Stephen Del Duca, Cambridge Mayor uh, Catherine McGarry, uh, the CEO of Explore Waterloo, which is a hospitality and tourism organization here in Waterloo Region, Michelle Saren. Uh, Alex Mostakis from uh, Drayton Entertainment. And then at the end of the show, good friend of mine, Glenn Wright, and he's the chair of the Clean and Reliable Energy Coalition. And so we wanted to start off today with a good friend of ours, um, uh, who and you've been joined. Uh, welcome to the show, Winnie. It's a pleasure to have you again. Thanks for having me, Ian. And you're a regular with Greg and I on Business to Business, but thought we would take a, a bit of t- your time today, know how busy you are, to talk about... Uh, where we're at, um, and just as background, and I think maybe we'll just quickly start, a quick story from you is um, uh, Winnie was one of the first, was a resident at Mount Sinai during the SARS, uh, when that all broke, and I think you were one of the first doctors to identify the first case that came into Canada, uh, so you've got a track record and a, and a history of understanding these these types of uh, um, outbreaks in Ontario. Just tell that story a little bit. Um, because I think it, it sets the stage for our conversation. Uh, thanks, Ian. Um, you know, yeah, my history with pandemics go back 17, 18 years. Uh, you are uh, correct. I uh, first uh, encountered a uh, virus, uh, a pandemic, um, back in the early 2000s uh, when SARS arrived in uh, Canada and specifically in Toronto at Mount Sinai Hospital. Um, as you said, I was a, an early a trainee in um, medicine, and uh, I was uh, un- the fortunate or unfortunate uh, person on call that night that uh, received the first uh, patient, which at the time wasn't quite named SARS at the moment, at, at the time, yeah. and so um, it was all new to us, and unlike the COVID pandemic, we had even less uh, to go by, so scary times, um, and, uh, you know, but we did learn a lot some of which uh, fueled some of the information that we had when COVID started, uh, albeit COVID is a whole different beast in itself, as we know. Well, you, you've got a big job at Cambridge Memorial Hospital and working along with, the, with everyone in the healthcare sector in Waterloo Region as interim chief of staff at Cambridge Memorial, chief of diagnostic imaging. Um, and we've had you on business to business to talk about where we're at along, you know, during that two years of, of COVID, because things are, what we do know is things are always have changed fast, that new things emerge, uh, things ebb and flow. And that's why we have, I guess we're into wave six now. Um, if, if you look at the numbers, I guess the question first off is, I think there's room for, for optimism. That's the first thing is that, that we are much more vaccinated. We kind of have got more of a handle on, uh, on the virus itself and the tools that we, we can use to protect ourselves, keep the economy open, keeping our lives open. 
But I think it's important that we do uh, sort of do a level set. Where are we at right now with COVID at the moment in Waterloo Region and across the country? Well, I think, um, you know, this last week has really marked it. I mean, we've entered the sixth wave. Um, you know, we were tracking testing before, but now more wastewater analysis, which has really shown that COVID-19 infections are beginning to climb. Um, uh, it's still early on. We're at the base of this wave or peak or whatever you want to call it. But I guess what is the unknown is that will this wave be a ripple or a surge? Will it be a big wave or small wave um, like we've previously felt? Um, but I think, you know, um, you know, the important part is to understand that this was, you know, kind of expected uh, when all of our, uh, you know, public health measures, our mask mandates, all the restrictions started to be lifted. Um, we are seeing similar trends in other provinces where restrictions have also been eased, such as, such as Alberta and B.C., um, and I think, you know, this easing really opened the door for um, the Omicron subvariant, the BA2, to really take hold. And we knew that in during the Omicron wave, we knew about the subvariant. And as we eased up our restrictions, we uh, we have seen it begin to spread. Uh, we see it in Asia, in Europe, in Quebec. Uh, the subvariant is uh, accounts for half the infections in the province. And uh, the, it's the dominant strain in Alberta at the moment. Um, in Ontario, the prevalence is about 25% as of uh, a few days ago or about a week ago. And so it will hit that hit the dominance uh, in, in this province. Um, now, so, no, I was just going to ask, um, because we, in the past, it's always been that the, what we've been trained to look for on the news or in, in our uh, in, in our social media is what's the case count today and, and the reproduction rate. There was a series of things early on where we said, geez, if we get over, I think remember in the early days, if we got over 200 cases in a day, we would say, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do today? You know, based on, on the numbers from yesterday. And this is just for testing now for PCR testing, confirmed cases in long-term care, healthcare settings, and those that are um, eligible for the testing, something like 3,500 cases in Ontario. Some measures, epidemiologists like, uh, you know, that I, I see on CTV and global news would say it's probably five to 10 times that amount. So you could have anywhere between 15 and 30,000 cases a day in Ontario. Um and so that's that. Those numbers don't mean as much as they do. What are you looking for? You you referenced uh, the wastewater signals. Um, just talk about why that's a, probably a better indicator of where this this wave surge, you know, whatever it's going to be. But how do we pay attention to different metrics now? Mm-hmm. You're right, Ian. You know, when when COVID started, we relied on uh, PCR testing. Uh, which, you know, we were testing everybody in the first, you know, five, four waves. Um, but I think Omicron is where things really changed. You know, as, as that variant, uh, you know, uh, came through, we shifted the testing guidelines. So now only certain eligible populations are, uh, are receiving the PCR testing. And as you know, with, during the Omicron wave, we pivoted to using um, antigen testing and symptoms as a guide of, of whether or not someone had covid um, and so when you when we talk about the numbers reported, um, they're still increasing, as you said, uh, but really it's scratching the surface. It's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I don't know what the um, amount of cases below that uh, tip is because we, we just aren't looking for it. Um, however, you're right. We look at secondary metrics. So wastewater is one. Um, you know, we've been doing that throughout the entire pandemic. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it's a good indicator of whether or not the infection is being or the virus is being picked up in, in the wastewater. The other things that we look at is also outbreaks, right? So outbreaks in the hospital, outbreaks in the uh, long-term care facilities, congregate settings. Um, this is really a good indicator of just general burden within the community, right? Um, so, and we have seen a little uptake in those in those areas. So I think looking at it, you know, the totality of it is really important because it tells you that we are on an upswing. So if one, if we had no outbreaks and, you know, it was just wastewater, maybe it was a blip, but we're seeing consistent increases in, in all of these sort of secondary indicators, uh, ir- you know, irrespective of whether or not the PCR testing is, is coming back higher or plateauing. Yeah. Now, now here's another question and there's why we, Greg and I, you, you always make Greg and I smarter on business to business, but I, I hope you'll, you'll help our listeners as well. The variants, everyone has their own, like, like what, what does the next variant mean and how did it happen? Maybe just quickly walk through that. This is not unexpected. Variants are going to happen until more, we're doing very well, 87% ish in Ontario, which is fantastic. But until the rest of the world catches up, there's lots of people that where it can mutate um, across the world. And because we're a global, um, we're interconnected, any variant that's somewhere around the world is going to find its way here. But talk about the variants and, and how we manage through that, because, you know, people are tired, they're frustrated, they want this to be over. Unfortunately, as I say, is the virus doesn't care whether we're angry or tired or want it to be over. But talk about those variants and and what we should be looking for there and how we should mentally prepare ourselves as a community. Yeah, um, you know, we've been talking about variants since wave one, right? We, 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 this is just basic, you know, you know, how viruses are. Um, And uh, so variants are not unexpected. And uh, as I've said to you before, each of our waves has really been defined by each of their variants and the characteristics. Um, So with Omicron, it was highly transmissible and really caused a huge burden of illness, um, as opposed to our first, you know, uh, wild type, I'll say, for our first first, uh, COVID strain. Um, And as they get smarter and, you know, uh, much more uh, transmissible, we obviously feel the effects of that. Um, So with this new subvariant and, you know, by opening the door to it, we've allowed, you know, the subvariant, which is even more uh, transmissible than Omicron uh, from wave five, um, we're seeing it really spill over uh, into uh, increasing infections. Um, But as you said, since we know that the variants exist, you know, the question is, you know, what do we do to manage it? Um, so, you know, we know we have certain defenses, as you said, you know, vaccinations and now, you know, actual systemic therapies uh, for reducing symptoms and for increasing uh, your chances of survival. Um, but really, you know, it's probably something we're going to have to keep dealing with. Um, until we get to a state where we're really endemic and, you know, we, we know how to manage this uh, year to year, um, we're going to be seeing more variants and, you know, recombinant variants where one variant mixes with another. It's, it's going to happen. Uh, we know that. So that's why I think, you know, going back to basics is really key. Um, we're going to have to learn to just, you know, live with, uh, you know, knowing these facts. 
And and so some of it is, I think we're at the point now where people have to make some of their own evaluations of what what they're comfortable with. Are you comfortable going to the Raptors game or going to a concert? Um, you know, and, and some will and some won't, and it will be a mixed bag. And when you talk about the tools, and I, and I think this is the important part, while we've lift, lifted mask mandates, some would argue it's too soon, but the fact of the matter is the tools that we know that we can, to your point, manage through this, because certainly the business community, but I think the community as a whole, no one wants to close again. I think we have to just say we cannot close again. We have to manage through it. But it may mean that there's some responsibility for, and, and the things we know, the tools we know, masks, Vax verification, possibly, uh, vaccinations for sure, rapid screening in workplaces and in, and in congregant settings, social distancing when you can. All of those things still apply now and maybe whether they're mandated or not are still things people should consider. Completely agree. Uh, I think in December when we talked, I said, you know, I wasn't quite ready to walk into a crowded subway in Toronto. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm a little bit more comfortable now. I mean, I ventured out to restaurants, but I mean, everybody has their own comfort level. And, you know, I, I will, you know, compare this to uh, everybody coming out of their own shell, right? Everybody has to learn how to live with this. And so I, I don't know if there's a true right or wrong, but I think it's to find the comfort level. Because at the end of the day, we're all trying to protect ourselves, our families and our friends, whatever uh, those tools are. Um, I will say that, you know, um, although, you know, publicly our health measures have relaxed, we can still choose to Mm -hmm. do certain things. So I would still urge everybody to consider their vaccinations if they're uh, eligible and specifically the third booster, um, because we know that that really has been shown to to reduce the severity of illness and hospitalizations. Um, So just to give you uh, a sense, you know, we were really great at getting people fully vaccinated, which is two doses. In the province and even in Waterloo, Wellington uh, region, we're at 86%-ish. Um, however, if you look at those with booster shots, it really plummets. So in Waterloo, Wellington, 12 and up uh, who are eligible for booster shots, only 55% of the population uh, has their booster. So that's significant because we know that that third dose um, is very protective uh, with the severity of disease. So I would say I w- really would urge people to, to, to get it. This is not back in December 2020 where you couldn't get a vaccination. Yeah. Now you can get it everywhere um, at your uh, physician's offices and pharmacies. Um, you know, it's, it's not a barrier anymore. And then I would also, you know, again, st- stress that, you know, simple public health measures that we know are tried and true, high quality masks, physical distancing, wash your hands. This is not something that, you know, we uh, are, um, you know, it's not new for us, right? So I think we just have to uh, reiterate how important that is. Um, and uh, and you use those choices um, well when we start to... Um, venture out into the public listen we're going to leave it there on the other side of the break we'll come back and finish our conversation uh, we appreciate you joining us we're joined by dr winnie lee and she's the interim chief of staff at cambridge memorial hospital we're going to take a short break uh, for a news break this is kitchener today on city news 570 Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm your guest, Ocia McLean. Uh, Join, and we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Winnie Lee, and she is the Interim Chief of Staff at Cambridge Memorial Hospital. We talked before the break, Winnie, about 
COVID and kind of where we're at and the things that we can do to manage through. Um, but one thing I, you know, we, we would remit, I would be remiss not asking is the people that have really been heroes and there's been many during COVID, but certainly those in the healthcare system itself, it's been two years of what I would consider for by most measures to be hell working long hours and very stressful circumstances Talk about your people. I mean, it's the people in healthcare that make it make it tick. Um, they must be tired. Um, how are they doing? Thank you for asking. And I'm just going to reiterate, you know, how much, you know, sincere pride and, you know, thankfulness and gratefulness that I have for all of my colleagues in the healthcare system. I think, um, you know, it's uh, not enough words to, to express how much, um, you know, emotion and effort that everybody has put to, um, you know, to take care of, uh, you know, our community uh, during the really tough parts of COVID. And as I said to you before, each COVID wave had its unique signatures and and was felt differently by the health system, right? Um, Five waves later and the last couple of years um, really has been tough. Um, And truly we're coming off a very challenging uh, wave with the Omicron wave. And I think that really hits home. Um, If you think about you know, where we're at now, um, it's only been a little over a month since, you know, Omicron settled in mid-March in, in, in Waterloo. Well, I would say mid-February to March. So it hasn't really been that long. And here we are talking about combating it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't had time to breathe. And so um, I will say that while the numbers have been low this last month or so, um, you know, really pleased to say that, you know, at least staff have been able to to get out there and enjoy some of the reopening of the public places when when the, the, the incidence was low. But I think it's unfortunate it hasn't been very long and we're still on alert at the hospital. Um, I think you're right. Everybody's tired, fatigued. I don't think it's just the healthcare system. I think it's everybody. Um, but, you know, knowing, you know, my organization, knowing the people in it, I really do have faith that we'll face it, you know, with our usual steadfast attitude and and do what we do best, which is always to take care of those who need us. Um, uh, as you said before, the virus doesn't care if we're tired or, or happy. And so I think we have to just, you know, face it uh, with that in mind and that, you know, we're here to do a job. Um, and, uh, you know, at the moment, nothing's really changed at the hospital. We've, we haven't changed any of our measures. We're still using our, you know, personal protective equipment. Uh, we haven't, uh, changed anything since, you know, the, the, the Omicron wave. Well, I think that's, uh, that's important for our listeners and for the community to understand is, um, the healthcare system is on standby, hasn't really caught its breath and won't until we're more past, uh, the, the 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 main part of COVID and we're not there yet. So good thing for us to keep in mind is how uh, hard you, your colleagues, Grand River, St. Mary's, all of the people in public health have been doing. Listen, we got about one minute left before we have to let you go. Um, I asked this question in the you know three or four weeks I've been doing this show of everyone that's come on. Everyone's experienced this differently, COVID differently. You know, what's your one or two takeaways, whether it's professional or personal, that that you've taken away from this uh, unprecedented uh, two years of COVID? Well, um, I think, you know, as I reflect on the last two years, um, it's been tough, but also, you know, a time where I've been really, really grateful for the the system that we have, the community, the hospital sector, um, the entire healthcare system. And I think we have to realize um, is that, you know, none of this is going away. 
I think what we have to remember is that, you know, there's always going to be ups and downs. The question for us is what we are willing to do to try and keep it them, you know, from uh, the case counts from rising and keeping at a pace that we can keep up. And so I think my last thoughts is that, you know, what I have learned is that, you know, we can combat this together and we always have. And that's the only way we're going to go forward. Wise words from Dr. Winnie Lee. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you taking uh, taking the time uh, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, it's time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we'll be joined by for a chat by Ontario's provincial liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We're now joined by Mr. Stephen Del Duca, and he is the leader of Ontario's Liberal Party. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me on, Ian. Well, as I said before we went on air, it's twice in two days, and uh, and <laughs> once of them was actually in person for uh, uh, an, an in-person Chamber of Commerce event that you were in uh, St. Jacob's yesterday to join us for. And I thought we would have you back on today and and talk about um, the discussion we had yesterday. So um, maybe d- d- just initially, there's a number of things that that uh, um, that people have on top of mind here. One of which is, and the theme of our discussion yesterday was Ontario's reopen and how we open, reo- or reopen and stay open safely. Right. Um, you know, what's the liberal plan that, and you did reference this yesterday for making sure that, um, business now can't close again. We we cannot close the economy again, but we have to do the right things to, in order to stay open. What's what's your philosophy and plan uh, should you become premier? Well, thanks very much for that question, Ian, and, and thanks for the opportunity to be with you today, but also yesterday's opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation, seeing you in person and, and having the chance to chat with others at your chamber event. I really do appreciate that. I, I think what you've asked is such an important question because of how how brutal the past couple of years have, have been for, well, frankly, for everyone in Ontario, from small business owners who had to close multiple times, many of you know many of whom lost their businesses, quite a few others that are just kind of clinging with their fingernails to stay open and now, of course, want to remain open. And moms and dads that watch their kids' schools open and close and open and close. That's something that I experienced in my household, my wife and I are raising two daughters, one's in grade nine, the other's in grade five in the public system. So I think you're I think you're 100 percent right. Every single person I know, every single person in Ontario wants to make sure that the economy stays open, our schools stay open, our healthcare system's not overwhelmed. And so I think that means we we've, we've got to take some of the most important lessons of the past couple of years and really use those to inform our thinking. So Here's one of the areas where I think we have to do a much better job than we've done up until this point. The youngest kids in Ontario who are eligible to get the vaccine, those under the age of 12, still a very small percentage of those kids who've gotten both doses of the vaccine. Now, my younger daughter is in that age category. She's 10, will be 11 in a couple of weeks. She's gotten her doses. But I really think right now the provincial government should be significantly increasing or strengthening it's communications, it's messaging, commercials, anything that can be done on all platforms to give families more confidence to go and make sure that those youngest kids who are eligible actually have their vaccines. Uh, that's just one of the examples, along with more and free rapid tests, uh, making sure that other supports are in place. And 
also making sure that we're careful, that we're thoughtful, we're careful, we're, we're taking all of the advice from the best medical minds that we have in this province to make sure that we don't go backwards. Yeah, and, and I think one of the one of the things around this is, and, and I've said this before uh, yesterday uh, with you, is business can't close again. We have to find a way to stay open. And while, and we talked at great length yesterday, there are so many needs that have been laid bare, whether it's in healthcare, education, and talent, in um, in in infrastructure. Uh, so there's no end of of in, of dollars needed. But the private sector is really going to have to drive the the revenues that to to pay for it by uh, creating the jobs and the investment and and and, um, and producing the the economic wealth that that can get us out of of this COVID. So two of the investments that are critical to business and they're community needs, but they're critical to business. As transport minister, you you would have heard every time you came through. Um, uh, on uh, the region of Waterloo, all day, two-way go. That seems to be in place. Uh, I asked you yesterday, as our ethanol pledge, you're still committed to that as Premier to make sure that gets to the finish line and we get that all-day frequent service to connect Toronto to Waterloo? 100%. Yeah, it's a a file or an issue that I know very, very well from my time at transportation. I I had a lot of really great conversations at that point. Uh, those years ago with municipal leaders, business community advocates like yourself and others about the need to make sure that gets delivered. It's a bit of a thornier, you know this, it's a bit of a thornier issue uh, than, you know, it's not just simple, as simple as sort of saying, let's make it happen. There is an investment that's required, a partnership that's needed with CN that owns still a chunk of the remaining quarter, but there are ways to deal with this. I'll say that I'm actually relieved that over the past four years, there has been continued movement in the right direction. But if I'm elected as premier on June 2nd, this will be a priority for me as someone who knows the issue so well. We will get that corridor unlocked so that people can go back and forth along that innovation corridor that we have. Uh, They can do it easily. They can do it accessibly. They can do it affordably. That is a top priority for me. And I think that's that's so important. As you know, I co-chair Canada's Innovation Quarter Business Council with Jan DeSilva, my colleague right. from the Toronto Region Board of Trade. And what we know is we have businesses on both ends of the corridor, like Google and, and the insurance companies, the banks, the accounting firms, manufacturers on both ends of the corridor. So moving people is uh, when we get back to more people moving about uh, to, between jobs is going to be totally uh, so incredibly important to leave the the road networks available for moving goods to market and that's uh, that it's incredibly important so glad uh, that's an important one for us in Waterloo region the the next one and I asked you about this yesterday and it really stems from the conversation we had around that what we've we we know that the healthcare system has been left exposed for some of the inherent gaps in the system that that uh, that covid has dis, uh, demonstrated um, and it's not just hospitals; it's it's right across the board in terms of, um, you know, public health and and uh, and primary care. Um, yeah. But one of the pieces here in Waterloo Region is we, as a community, have not had a new hospital built in over sixty years. Um, yeah. We we are the fa- second fastest growing municipality in Canada. We 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 know we our bed capacity in terms just in terms of beds is is the lowest in the country. Um, and so as a community, we're coming together saying the next big investment the province and the feds uh, and, and um, need to make here because we are an economic engine is a new hospital. 
And right now we're at the stage where we, we need to do a study. We need the, the um, Ontario Health um, um, uh, Ministry to, to grant some money so we can do the homework to get the, the, to a point where a decision can be made by the next government. Um, and and I, I guess the question I ask you then is, is I know there's lots of competing interests because there's lots, everyone needs more health care. But we certainly have been have uh, have been at the back of the bus and need to move closer to the front. Is that a, would that be another one of those priority areas for this particular part of the of the world? It, it would for sure. I, I had the chance to hear it, of course, from you directly. But I I know I've also had conversations. I've heard from the mayors in your area. I've heard from you know those who uh, who are in senior positions at your hospitals, like Leaf Aircloud at St. Mary's and and others, about the need to make sure that we we get to a point where a Grand River and St. Mary's can be redeveloped, they can be modernized, they can be expanded. So Waterloo Region residents have the health care that is exceptional, that is also close to home. Uh, so if elected on June 2nd, my government would make the investment in the next round of planning money is 10 to $12 million at a minimum to help, uh, to help get that process kickstarted and moving forward with some momentum. I, it, the other thing that I stressed yesterday, Ian, was and I know I experienced this in my own home community of Vaughan many years ago before I was an elected official as a community volunteer supporting the planning and ultimate development and construction of Vaughan's hospital, which opened about a year, a year and a half ago. Um, you know, I understood, I, I learned it firsthand. Sometimes the hospital planning process, it's, it's longer than we'd like to be, like it to be. It's obviously a very thorough and complex process and it needs to be to make sure that all of the right due diligence is done. But sometimes it's a it's a process that's hard for community members to understand or to navigate or to realize where is a particular project in the queue. So I want to make sure that, yes, the money is there right away so that the planning can continue. But I also want to give Waterloo Region residents a sense of what the longer horizon looks like, what the entire process or path will look like so we can get to a spot where, yes, one day, hopefully sooner rather than later, Shovels can go on the ground. The expansion and modernization can happen and Waterloo region can have the kind of hospital care that it needs. I think one of the things we heard and I, I didn't wasn't, I mean, I guess I didn't fully know this, but uh, uh, Lee Fairclaw said this yesterday who represented her colleague, Ron Gagne from, from um, uh, Grand River hospital is we also service a, a bigger market, right? Or, or bigger area for some of the specialties that we do, whether it's cancer or, or uh, renal um, uh, services right from, um, you know, basically Owen Sound right down over to Milton and, 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 uh, over to Stratford. So we, we do a bigger area than just this region. And, and that's part of the way that system's built now is that we have these regional centers. So that's great to hear. Listen, um, there's so much to get to. And I got a few more minutes to, to, to dig in. And one yet that I, we spoke about yesterday, because I think it's incredibly important. And not easy. And I think you made you made a joke yesterday. I was asking you all the easy questions, but <laughs> you're you're uh, you. Thank goodness there's people like you that are prepared to put their name forward because uh, somebody's got to answer these tough questions. Um, when you look at and I don't I don't I've stopped saying that there's an energy question and there's an environment question and there's a climate question because all three of them are connected. Right. Um, when we look at at the at the change that that we saw the investment of four point three billion dollars in in uh, Windsor Essex for an electric battery plant, uh, the the drive that everyone knows is that we need to electrify and you said it yesterday basically electrify everything transit yeah. uh, you know intermodal uh, cars 
that's I think that's that's where we need to go. But it includes huge investments in infrastructure, not only charging stations for EV cars, as an example, the incentives that people can afford to buy them. But then we get to things like power generation and and power distribution. How are we going to have the the green power to meet our climate goals, still have the industrial capacity for our manufacturers and consumers? And, and I think it's an important one that every party needs to have a comprehensive view of that. How, how do you, and I said yesterday, how do you, how do you um, square the circle on those three, what can be competing interests? Well, I think, first of all, you need a credible and responsible plan. And my biggest concern in this space right now in Ontario, Ian, is that even though the government, the current conservative government should know that we are, as a province, we're about to enter a really a really challenging few years around, you know, whether or not we have enough electricity being generated in this province. And for your audience, the reason that we're going to have some challenging times is that in about three years, uh, the Pickering nuclear um, nuclear facility is going to be coming offline. And that's a really, you know, a, a really big chunk of electricity generation that is created or produced here in Ontario that gets uh, obviously gets used or consumed on a regular basis. So we have a, a, a large scale nuclear facility that's going to be coming offline. It's going to be stopping its electricity generation. At the same time, as you mentioned, because we need to electrify more, because we want to confront the climate crisis by reducing, if not eliminating, our reliance on uh, on greenhouse gas emitting fossil fuels, uh, we're going to need more electricity. So we have a drop in how much we're producing at the same time as having a massive spike in how much we need there's, there's going to be a big gap in a couple of years, and the gap is going to grow as we try to, again, electrify everything. I, I mentioned this yesterday when, when I was chatting with you. I'm the proud owner of an electric vehicle, a pure battery electric vehicle. I love it. I've been trying to get my friends, family members to also make the switch. Um, one of the reasons that I said late last year an Ontario Liberal government would reinstate the electric vehicle incentive program to make it cheaper for hardworking Ontario families to make that transition to an electric vehicle. Uh, I I look at this problem and and my biggest concern, as I said a second ago, is that there's there's no plan currently from the Ford Conservatives to deal with the gap that we're going to have. The Ontario Liberal plan that we're going to be putting out around the climate crisis and a stronger and cleaner environment just in a few weeks, a plan that I'm really proud of, will talk about what, what do we have to do? What does that roadmap look like for Ontario to make sure that we do have the clean electricity being generated uh, in order to, to fill the gap and then to do more of the electrification? So part of that plan will be about prioritizing conservation, something that we haven't done very well over the past four years because the Ford government decided to scale back conservation efforts. We have neighboring provinces and states that have clean energy generation. I think we have to do a better job of tapping into that. We have renewable um, electricity generation options. We have uh, battery storage. We have storage now as a new techno, relatively new technology that we can be tapping into. We also have a small modular nuclear reactor that's going to be built here in the province of Ontario. There's new technology there that I think we should be looking at. This is my way in of saying, I think there are, there's no magic sort of magic wand. We're going to wave and get this done all at once, but There are multiple options available to Ontario. We just need a credible plan that can be responsibly and competently implemented. And we don't have that plan right now under the Ford Conservatives. Ontario Liberals will have that plan and we'll start that work on day one. 
Uh, and we got about, uh, just to forewarn you, we got two and a half minutes before we're going to go to uh, just a quick uh, news break. But I wanted to talk about education and talent and the issues um, um, that, that are we're seeing right across the province. Not only coming out of COVID and having that plan of making school elementary and high school kids are in school all the time next year. Um, but as we think about the importance of the post-secondary uh, sector, the college, the universities, I know we had John Tibbetts with us yesterday. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of jobs available here in Waterloo Region uh, right now across sectors, not just in technology, but manufacturing. Take yeah. your pick. There's, there's gaps here. The talent crunch is incredibly uh, significant. Um, what? How, how do you, would you address that? Because a, a combination of things like immigration is it is it you know um, foreign pro- professionals is it is it increasing capacity in the trades? All of those things, I guess, need to be done. What's the plan, or what's what's your philosophy, or how to how to address that? Well, first of all, whenever I get the chance to talk about anything that's either directly or indirectly linked to education, I I love these conversations. As I said earlier. This is not an abstract discussion or a, just a purely political conversation for me. When I'm thinking about education, skills, training, lifelong learning, it really, to me, is about my daughters, grade nine, grade five. You know, yes, they're still in my in my minds. They're always going to be my babies, of course, but they're getting a bit older. Our older daughter is just a few years away from having to make decisions about post-secondary opportunities. I want to make sure that, as we said earlier in this conversation, our schools are resilient enough. Our entire system is resilient enough because learning needs to be essential. But I also want our post-secondary institutions, colleges, universities, the skilled trades community, proper funding supports in place. I want to make sure that students and their families have affordable access to post-secondary opportunities. But the institutions themselves, the colleges and the universities, which I know Waterloo Region is proud to be home to several Uh, You know, you have to make sure that they have the investments that are required so that they can set our kids up for success. And right now, we don't we don't have that in the province of Ontario and the Ontario Liberal Plan for post-secondary will speak to exactly how we get to where we need to go to produce the world leading talent we need. Listen, that's just perfect. Right at the at the appropriate time for us to take. (laughs) Listen, Stephen, uh, stick with us. We're going to we'll come back and continue our conversation Uh, After the break, we're going to take a quick break for a news break. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We continue our conversation with Stephen Del Duca. He is, of course, the leader of Ontario's Liberal Party. Uh, He's also the MPP for Vaughan Woodbridge and a former uh, or past uh, transport minister here in Ontario. Thanks for joining us and sticking with us through the break, uh, Stephen. Listen, um, one of the things we talked about again yesterday, but I think would be really important uh, because it connects a number of dots, at least for for me and the business community, is the public procurement process and the importance of making sure that Ontario businesses, uh, if not have a leg up, at least have a level playing field. And and we think about here in Waterloo Region, you've been here many times, whether it's the new innovators at Communitech, whether it's the, the businesses that or form the supply chain in auto and food processing. There are tons of businesses that can produce and compete if they could get that first government contract, which, as I said yesterday, it seems like it's the care milk secret. And for those old enough to remember is no one knows what it is, but for a small business, it's important. That can be that first contract can lead to growth, new jobs, new investment. Um, how do you, you know, that, that's something that I think is important 
As I, I think my observation would be it needs to be right from the top saying we're going to make this a priority of the government to make sure that small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses have a fair shake. Yeah, listen, I agree 100%. I think that there's, to me, there are two primary objectives when you're when you're dealing with public sector procurement. Obviously, one is to drive towards the very best value for taxpayers because, you know, governments at all levels, but I'll just talk about the provincial government and whether it's directly within the Ontario public service or the broader public sector, I mean, it's literally billions of dollars of people's hard-earned money that, you know, the government and the agencies that are investing every single year to purchase everything from technology to literally paper clips. And so you always want to make sure you're driving towards the very best value for taxpayers. But at the same time, given how much is purchased, there's a glorious opportunity Without breaking any rules, uh, there's a glorious opportunity to make sure that you're also using public sector procurement as a tool for economic development and economic growth domestically, locally. And I don't think that at all we've done a very good job over the past number of years in this regard. I I have conversations with small and medium-sized business owners who will tell me that they have an easier time. They're based here in Ontario, in Waterloo Region and beyond. And they have an easier time securing government contracts in New York State than they do in Ontario. And part of it is because, uh, well, it's a long story, but part of it is basically that I think we have a bit of a almost inferiority complex within our public procurement process. We have to do better. We've got to break through that. And we have to use procurement as a tool to drive value for taxpayers, but also help our local economies grow. Well, I think that's uh, that uh, is uh, important to note. As the pandemic started, we had no PPE in Ontario or, frankly, across the country. Over 80 companies pivoted here in Waterloo Region. I think you heard that story from our friend Tony Lamantia yesterday. Yeah, uh, yeah. To create everything from uh, medical devices to um, um, masks, uh, uh, gloves, the whole the whole gambit. And we've gone, it's like we've forgotten what it was like two years ago, because we've gone back to buying offshore again. And many of those companies, some will stay in business, others will have to move on to other things because they don't have access. But it's, it's, it's something that we will continue to be a partner in how we find a solution that respects international trade agreements, because we are, we need to keep our markets open, but we also need to support local business. Listen, we're almost out of time. I wanted to leave the last, uh, you know, minute or thirty seconds, um, or forty-five seconds, I guess, where we got left. <laughs> okay, it's been two years. Everyone's experienced COVID differently. You've been in a, in a unique position as a leader of a political party. What, what's what's your takeaways, uh, either personally or professionally, over the last couple of years? Well, I'll start really quickly professionally. I think looking at the people of Ontario, I just marvel at how strong and resilient we have been. All fifteen million of us. Uh, listening to the best medical advice, following the rules by and large, and finding a way collectively to get through what's just been a horrible ordeal. So hats off to the people of Ontario. At a personal level, I would just say quickly, and I know it's hard to find silver linings when you're dealing with the pandemic, but I will say as a a father who spent a lot of time on the road as a politician in the past and and more recently, it has been, it is, it's been good to be close to home. And be around yeah. my daughters during you know time that I wouldn't have otherwise had likely in or in being around them uh, to see them to know that they're doing okay and to be you know together as a family unit uh, has been has been rewarding uh, unexpectedly so I mean unexpectedly because normally I'd be on the road yeah but, you no, know I, it's, I, I, it's, I think it's that's grateful for that 
Amen to that. As a father of two daughters as well, I, I couldn't echo that more. Listen, thanks so much for joining us. We've been joined by Stephen Del Duca. He's the Ontario Liberal Party leader. It's time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we'll be joined by Cambridge Mayor Ka- Catherine McGarry. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We're now joined, as promised, by our good friend Catherine McGarry. And she, of course, is the mayor of Cambridge. But in a past life, she was also in the healthcare profession herself. She was also um, the MPP for Cambridge from 2014 to 18 and served as both Transportation Minister and Minister of Natural Resources and Forestry. So just got a wide array, uh, array of experiences um, and and I guess I, I I maybe the first question I put to you, um, Catherine, is I don't think anyone could be fully prepared for what the last two years has presented us. But you know, having been in healthcare and then also um, um, you know been around government, it must have given you some capacity to kind of um, start navigating through what was a what was a incredibly difficult period that, uh, as COVID hit. It certainly is true. And uh, thanks for inviting me on today, Ian. It's delightful to uh, see you again. Yeah. Of course, we're, we're on radio and we've gotten used to uh, virtual Zoom meetings and, and conference calls. But I thank you for the question. I would say that, you know, I was 15 months into my term as mayor when we heard about the pandemic and we shut down. And at that point, you'll remember, it was going to be till April 5th, yeah. 2020. And yet here we are two years after that, facing mm-hmm. April and facing a sixth wave of COVID. I don't think in a million years, anybody with a front row seat in municipal politics or any other level of government had any idea what we were facing. And although we have collaborated with all of our area municipalities and the region of Waterloo, and we've had every level of government um, at the table. I think that navigating the last two years has been extraordinarily difficult, not only for our citizens, government leaders, sector leaders of, of any sector through this, but being able to finally sign the declaration that ended the state of emergency on March 25th two years to the day after I signed the declaration, was a milestone indeed. And although we signed that declaration that ended the state of emergency, longest one ever in the history of Cambridge, of course, um, it didn't mean that the pandemic is over. And we can see that with increasing numbers. We've taken uh, the mask mandate out. People feel that potentially this is over. But when you look at the healthcare system, Ian, uh, I know that you just had uh, uh, Dr. Winnie Lee on from the Cambridge Hospital, and they're still seeing increasing numbers. They're still dealing with the effects of new COVID infections and the after effects from people that may no longer be positive, but have the long COVID effects that mm-hmm. uh, they're still dealing with, not just in hospital, but in home and community care. So we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, but we are having to turn the corner now that we're mostly vaccinated and boosted and how to still maintain our community and our healthcare system in the face of this ongoing pandemic. 
you know, I, we, we had the good fortune of having, um, uh, uh, as part of our provincial leaders series, um, both Andrea Horbath from the NDP, Stephen Del Duca, who was just on, but he, he was uh, here in town in St. Jacob's yesterday for the, for a series of conversations. And one of the, one of the things that came up in both, uh, um, sessions was, and, I, and I'm going to tie it back to that emergency order and the, and, and working together is I made comment of saying Waterloo region has always prided itself on a reputation of working closely together, different levels of government. We have seven municipalities, the regional municipality. Um, and I think, you know, my observation was five or seven years ago, certainly, I think we were better talking at it than we were actually at actually doing it. <laughs> I would um, agree. But, but I do think the last two years has really demonstrated for everybody. I'm, I'm interested in your take on this because sometimes it's like Cambridge and then the other part of the region. But I think that we, we, we have realized that we're all in this together, whether it's the healthcare system and Grand River, St. Mary's and Cambridge, all forming the, you know, the, 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 the hub of, uh, of, of healthcare, whether it's the municipality saying we got people that work in Waterloo, live in or work in Cambridge or vice versa. So we, you've had to do more in concert and work really collaboratively on an, on a, like a granular level and it's 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 been obvious to those of us in the business community that we didn't have to have well I got to have set eight different conversations. There was more, you know, um, connection between different levels of government. It, it, was that your observation as well? Because I, I see when you came out of the emergency order, you had the conversation, you did it together. Said we went in together. We're going to come out together because it's important for residents of the region as a whole to make sure that there's some consistency. And I, I just, I, I saw a lot more co- cooperation and collaboration. And I, I would certainly agree with that, uh, Ian, and I know you were a part of it. Um, I would say that at the beginning of the pandemic, we recognize that the public health um, department was going to be our lead on the pandemic response. And although uh, Cambridge was actually early to start our pandemic, pandemic group here in the city of Cambridge, responding to what we were hearing overseas and, and in the media. And Dr. Wong was was uh, telling us. So I know we started to meet at the beginning of February. And when the pandemic was declared, we came together with the previous pandemic plan that was done after SARS mm-hmm. in order to bring up the uh, pandemic control group for the region led by public health and the regional chair's office, the CAO, of course, uh, Mike Murray, and then Bruce Lochner was chair of that. And as heads of council, we had all eight of us, all of our CAOs, all of the sector leadership, all of the trifectorate of the incredible women that led these teams, you know, Lee Mm -hmm. Faircloth, um, Sharon Ball, and um, uh, Dr. Wong, in order to lead the public health piece. But Our model here in Waterloo Region, which is part of that barn building experience that we all know about, became one of the great models in Ontario on how to try and conduct business to support our healthcare workers and to get information out to our businesses in our community in a collaborative way. Cambridge was certainly part of that response and we were in lockstep together. We decided because we have shared services, policing, um, public health, and other things, 
that are are managed in you know, our wastewater surveillance system, for instance, are all region wide, that we as area municipalities needed to be in lockstep with each other in order to make decisions as a group that benefited the 630,000 people that we represent in the region and the 140,000 residents in Cambridge that I represent. I've never seen anything like it. This was an incredible piece of work. And not only just at this level, Ian, I know, as I said, you were part of the business community with Best Waterloo Region in order to bring the business perspective. Mm -hmm. But I immediately convened um, a weekly meeting with our area MPPs, you know, the two that represent Cambridge and the two MPs that represent Cambridge. And although um, one of them in particular, and you'll understand that uh, Ms. Kara Halios uh, was became an, a known anti-vaxxer and everything else. She dropped off the call pretty quickly. Um, I was able to meet at least weekly or bi-weekly with all levels. And when um, we needed extra support, I was uh, in meeting with um, MPP Mike Harris and Amy Fee with Kitchener and Waterloo in order to get our provincial voice heard. And every week or two, we were meeting with our area MPs as a region on Saturdays. So I would say this was a time period where all levels of government worked incredibly well in order to try and manage our business sector, look at what we needed to manage our healthcare system, and also to collaborate with each other in, in making sure that we had a clear, consistent message for our community. You, you mentioned uh, a, a, a couple of, or a few minutes ago, and I think this is important, is there's room for optimism. We've lifted some of these mandates. Some would argue it's too soon. We knew there was going to be a spike when we did lift some of these mandates, mm-hmm. like mass mandates and go back to full capacity. It's just going to happen. But I, I'm, I, I guess the concern that the business community would have is the one thing that is not, should not, and has to be taken off the table is another province-wide or, or um, across-the-board shutdown. Yeah. But having said that, that we know there are tools, and this is what um, Dr. Ball or um, um, Dr. Lee was talking about earlier in the show is we know the things that will work so that we can keep the economy open, we can keep people working, we can keep the community doing things that bring us together, but we have to do it safely. So, and I'm not saying mandates, but as the virus progresses, and I, I believe that the region showed leadership. We were one of the first municipalities in Canada that had a mask mandate that said we are going to put a mask mandate in place. So it showed leadership. Are, are these the things you're monitoring, both the public health um, information, wastewater signals, et cetera, and saying if we need to, we have to do the right thing, whether it's a seasonal mask mandate. Do we do we do use some of the um, the, the things that we know that work to make sure that we we minimize the impact of this latest wave and don't ever have to explore ha- closing down the economy again. Is it? I mean, I, I get the sense that that's where, where, where the leaders in this community are at, but is that your sense as well? It is, Ian. We know what we need to do. Um, we've proven that the... Oh, have we... Have we frozen up there, maybe? Um, I don't know, Polly, if we've, Catherine is, is Catherine frozen there? She's done her Zoom thing. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? I think we've got a little bit of a technical glitch with Mayor McGarry. We're going to take a, a we're going to take our, um, our our quick break early. We'll be back with more on Kitchener today on City News five seventy. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570 and joined now on the phone by uh, Cambridge Mayor uh, Catherine McGarry. And uh, as can only be in Zoom times, uh, we had a Zoom freeze there with with, uh, Mayor McGarry. Not only, (laughs) but we're glad to have you back, although I had minor heart palpitations when you went frozen uh, on live radio. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Catherine. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. And I'm even in the city and why the internet is still off is beyond me. But that's why we have backup at phones. Exactly, exactly. Listen, maybe just finish up. You were talking about yeah. um um the, sort of the, the the next the next pieces and, and um and, and moving forward from COVID. Yes, and I think that uh, continuing to mask up is the uh, important things. We know that uh, better masks rather than cloth masks like N ninety fives, the surgical masks do help protect. I I can tell you I'm still wearing mine and will for a long time yet. Uh, Physical distancing, social distancing is still a thing. You need to ensure that when you're in larger groups, it's well ventilated so that it has less chance of breathing that air in. But in order to keep businesses open, I have to hand it to yourself and to the Chambers of Commerce here that had such a great program for our small businesses. We can see that the Eclipse masks, I think they distributed a million and a half to small businesses. Those Eclipse masks are still being worn by our area businesses. But there's room for optimism. As we've learned how to navigate this um, disease, and it's going to be with us for a while, we're tired of COVID. It's not tired of us. It's still looking for new hosts to take hold in. But we have great optimism in our business world. You know, we just put out a news release here in the city of Cambridge, and where the city doubled their construction value over our previous year's activity. And we had a $519 million construction value, you know, this past year, which is a real clear indicator of continued momentum in Cambridge. It's the first time we've achieved it, but it represented a 101% increase over 2020, even in the pandemic. And we continue to see major investments in our communities, you know, with, with huge companies coming in and, uh, um, you know, like Novo, Novo Call and uh, Bruce Power just awarded another $40 million contract to BWXT. You know, we've seen investments such as the Cambridge Mill owners proposing a, you know, a five-star hotel in downtown Galt along with a 37-story condo building. We've seen investments in blend tech ingredients, Beckhoff Automation, Smarter Alloys, uh, Farm League Brewing, and also um, you know, new companies that have settled here like Primed, who are now creating a lot of the PPE that we didn't have made locally and that was available uh, as Canadian product to our local healthcare facilities. And we've seen also a huge increase in uptick in our filming industry with, you know, another value of, I think, $1.2 or $1.3 million of economic activity just last year. And that was through the pandemic. So we do have hope for the future. There's a lot of optimism in our business world in particular. But, you know, my caution to people out there in businesses and 
and uh, going to gatherings is continue to maintain those public health measures that work. We still have vulnerable people in our community. Our healthcare workers, you heard that from Dr. Lee, are tired. They have been exhausted and very emotional through this period of time. So I think, yeah. you know, we're yeah. in good shape, Ian. We're in good shape and room for optimism, but we need to be vigilant. I guess that's that's the, mm-hmm. the, the watchword here. Um, and, and we're blessed in Waterloo Region. I mean, we think think about the three uh, uh, cities that that, that are the, the the hubs, but our our, our uh, rural municipalities. We are the fast second fastest growing urban municipality in in Canada, um, and and we rightfully expect that there's investments in that Grand River and and St. Mary's are looking for for a new hospital to supplement what's already happened mm-hmm. at Cambridge Memorial. Um, that we know that that the LRT phase two is an incredibly important part of of moving people and and continuing economic growth and True. things like all day two we and connecting us to Toronto all day two we go. Um, listen, you know it, it is. I I would echo your thoughts. I I think that while we're not past COVID, and I'm I I, I just am a little cautious that we cannot pretend that it's not still out there. We saw or see today thirty five hundred cases. Um, that, and that's just the PCR test is from healthcare means there's mm-hmm. lots of COVID in the community. So we need to be vigilant, but there is room for, uh, uh, and reason to be optimistic. Listen, last question before we let you go, we're, we'll be coming up on our, uh, on our, um, uh, news break at 28 after the hour here. Um, you know, everyone, and I, I've asked this, a, a question of everybody that that's come on the show the last, uh, four or five weeks on Friday afternoon, which is, We've all experienced this differently, COVID differently. It's impacted us in different ways. You know, what are what are your takeaways, or what have you learned, either professionally or personally, over the last uh, from the last two years? That's a great question, Ian. And I would say that um, what I've learned personally, I guess, is that our community is quite resilient. It's resourceful, and they really care for each other. And that's been key in order to ensure all of us can get together. But one thing's for sure, 100% of us have been affected by it. And I would say that our families have also shown resourcefulness and resilience and patience as we've navigated this uh, incredible time together. But I would say that uh, professionally, uh, as a former healthcare provider, I know that our healthcare system uh, was certainly needed. Our hospital new expansion opened literally in the nick of time. What, about six weeks before the pandemic was declared, we had the new hospital expansion. But as our healthcare system came under fire for needed uh, PPE and supplies to help care for our people, our businesses stepped up and so did our, our community. The mask makers provided cloth masks to the hospital, and we saw innovative, creative local products to fill the gaps that we had and so that our hospitals became well-supplied. But I wanted to take this moment to give a shout-out to everyone who has worked in the healthcare industry in all capacities for what you've been doing and continue to do in, in order to care for our people. It's incredible. That's a perfect place to leave it. Thanks so much for spending some of your, I know how busy you are, but thank you for spending some time with us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Ian.
All right, we've been joined by Cambridge Mayor Catherine McGarry. It's time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we'll be joined by my colleague from Best Waterloo. She's the CEO of Explore Waterloo, Michelle Saren. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We are now joined, as promised, by my good friend, Michelle Saren, and she is the brand new, well, relatively brand new, CEO of Explore Waterloo Region. And of course, Explore Waterloo Region is the Hospitality and Tourism uh, Association here in Waterloo Region. And welcome to the show. Thank you for, for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ian. Well, you have really hit, now I should say to people, you hail from Halifax. You've just left a similar job, come to uh, um, to, to um, uh, replace, or not replace, but to succeed uh, mm-hmm. our, our good friend Minto Schneider, who was part of our best Waterloo business economic support team of Waterloo Region. You have stepped in with uh, without missing a beat and joined Tony and Greg and, and Matt and myself um, representing the needs of the business community, so I just want to give a shout out, saying it's been it's been awesome having you part of uh, of the region, but certainly part of our best Waterloo group. Um, and and in some ways, you and that your sector have had the toughest time of all sectors, because as and I think we all know, hospitality and tourism. So everything from music venues, theaters. Uh, hockey, sports, take your pick, um, uh, conventions were the first to close and are the last to open. So um, maybe maybe just to, to get started, why don't you give us a, just a quick background, because you come from, from the East Coast or come to us from the East Coast, give a little bit of a background of who you are uh, and people will start to get to know you in the in the coming months. Yeah, you bet. Well, um, I'm actually originally from Ontario. I was uh, born in Oakville, but I haven't lived here in, gosh, must be about 23 years now. Um, yes, I moved here from Halifax about, so gosh, six weeks ago. And I was there for six years. I was the CEO of Tourism Nova Scotia, um, a crown corporation. And um, I, before that, I spent 17 years at the Canadian Tourism Commission, um, both working for the Department of Foreign Affairs in Chicago and when I got promoted, I moved to Vancouver and I led the uh, meetings, conventions, sales team for the country. So our job was to bring uh, group business in from around the world into Canada. So uh, excited to be here in Waterloo Region. Well, bringing all those experiences to what we now consider to be the center of the universe, which is <laughs> Waterloo Region. Listen, um, we want to talk in, in a minute about the priorities of Explore Waterloo and, and your your goals and aspirations for the association, but certainly the industry in Waterloo Region. And we also want to take some time to really explore the fun things, because I think we're going to have our first real summer of mm-hmm. activities, fingers crossed, um, this summer. But let's let's talk about where we're at in COVID and, and maybe you can let people know about how tough it's been on the sector but we're, we're cautiously optimistic that we're reopening restaurants, et cetera, are able to, to you know, um, welcome more people. But I think there's a note of caution. One thing we've said is best Waterloo and including you is we can't close again, but it means we're going to need to be smart about doing the things we need to do so that we can stay open. 
Um, maybe talk a little bit about that because the importance of, of, of maintaining business being open, particularly in the hospitality and tourism sector, is going to be critical. It, it's absolutely critical. We can't have another lockdown. Um, it's been great for the industry that the mandates were lifted. When you look at this through a visitor lens, visitors need to, and they want to go to a place that's easy to go to. And the more barriers you put in their way, the less likely they are to come. So when we had the challenges at the border where people had to have the PCR test, it was so difficult to get to schedule that to, um, to and, and often, oftentimes it, there was a significant cost associated with getting that. So we were we were making the border thicker and more difficult than it needed to be. So um, we're absolutely thrilled that uh, so that was gone. Um, we still need public health and politicians to change the narrative, though, a little bit. Um, they, they, speaking about the fact that tourism is safe and encouraging people to get out and explore their, their own areas um, while doing it safely, that would help the industry tremendously. Uh, we're still hearing that 43% of people still are concerned about being in group settings, about going to festivals, going to sporting events. So we need the narrative um, from government and uh, and uh, public health to change. Um, and as we keep saying, reopening is not recovery. We've got a long way. We've got a long way to go as an industry. Um, tourism was the first hit, as you said, it was the hardest hit, and it's going to be the last to recover. Um, and our tourism businesses, they're going to need financial support for some, for some time. Um, we do, as an industry, want the staycation tax credit to be permanent if possible. And this is a, a wonderful program where you can get 20% back on your vacation. Um, so if you're spending $1,000, you can get $200 back in, in rebate for an individual. And if you're a family, you can get up to $400 back. So that, that's an incredible incentive for getting out and exploring in Ontario this summer. Um, we're hearing that as a country, Canada won't return to pre-pandemic levels until 2026. But when we look at our area in Waterloo Region, we're in a little bit better position um, because we draw mainly from Ontario, specifically the GTA with drive markets. We expect to recover um, hopefully by 2023, which is fantastic news. So we're definitely trending better than the country as a whole. I'd say the biggest issue right now for our industry, um, now that the border restrictions are lifted, is the issue of labor. Um, my biggest concern is that we've got all this pent-up demand and all these people want to get out and explore. And our restaurants and our hotels don't have the labor to serve the visitor in the way that the visitor wants to be served. And if people are coming here and they're not having the best experience, well, that can do long-term damage to the brand. So we do have concerns about that. And we're working um, as an industry with the federal government to um, create uh, an immigration strategy that will specifically target uh, the, the tourism industry and make it easier for people to move here with a path to permanent residency. I think you raised that at one of our business economic support team water to region of, um, uh, meetings. We still meet twice a week because there are still a lot of issues with the recovery. And as you say, reopening is not recovery for many businesses. Now there are some that have done well, but for 30 to 40% of the economy, there is still a long way to go to be fully yeah. back. One of the interesting things is talent shortages, which I think you've just referenced, 
is hitting every sector. Whether you're doing well, if you're at a home, digital, uh, online, you still have challenges because it's hard to get people. But at least your revenues are up and, and you're, you're doing better mm-hmm. financially. It's, it's especially pronounced in the hospitality and tourism sector where many people were not able to work for months and months, if not years, one or two years. They've left the industry entirely. And so now you have the added pressure of saying, I can't get full staff, so I can't be open full capacity. And that impacts your revenue and your ability to make the investments in, in the hospitality and tourism. So, I mean, there's got to be a number of different things that, that, we're, that you're working on and that we're working on collaboratively around making sure we, we address this talent gap, um, particularly in hospitality and tourism. So beyond, you know, we're, 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 immigration is one and, and encouraging people to get back in. What are some of the other things that we can do as a community um, or as a business community to, to try and uh, address the shortages, particularly in, in your sector? Well, we really have to work with uh, the universities and, and young people, at, you know, start at an early age and explain that tourism is a viable career option. It isn't all low paying entry level jobs. There is a path to um, exe- the executive suite as well. And, and, and there's all kinds of interesting jobs and that involve travel in this business. It, it's, it's a fantastic industry to be part of. So we really have to start there. But businesses as well, they, they need to be creative right now in how they work with the, the resource pool that they have, the human resource pool, um, cross-training, um, job sharing, uh, that sort of thing, um, making the most of what they do have. Um, it, it's it's certainly challenging. But uh, back to the government, we're, we're hoping that they can uh, remove the labor market impact assessment uh, around the for the immigration sector. So we see that as a, a great option for us um, to be able to have a specific sector for the tourism industry to bring people in because uh, we're there's we're two hundred thousand people short for our for our industry for this summer alone um, across in Canada. Canada. Yeah, across yeah. Canada. So that's significant. Well, one of the short-term pieces, and I guess it forms some of the longer term as well, is we're blessed here in Waterloo Region to have, what, between forty and 50,000 students that come into mm-hmm. uh, across our post-secondaries every year to come into Waterloo Region. Some of those are, are um, f- you know, NUCA or foreign, foreign students. Um, a- expanding and making it easier for those foreign students to do temporary or do part-time work uh, and making that easier um, is going to be one of those things that that could make a big difference, right? Where you can, you know, um, making it easier for someone who's not a Canadian resident or a landed resident, mm-hmm. but doing their studies. I, those are the types of things that I think we can do uniquely here in Waterloo Region to kind of address some of those uh, those those talent shortages. Is, is that is that another piece that we're working on? You know, between federal and provincial government, also the post secondaries. Absolutely. Uh, that, that's uh, that's absolutely critical. There's an industry association called Tourism HR Canada, and they're they're absolutely exploring that type of option uh, with with the schools. Um, so important. Listen, let's move on. You, you're you know every I remember. Well, I sort of remember when I started at the chamber twelve almost twelve years ago. Uh, you get in, you kind of get your uh, you know get your bearings, get your feet wet. And then you kind of look and say, what's next for the organization that you're leading? And you, you've got a, a small, like, like most not-for-profits, a small but mighty band of uh, mm-hmm. our team. Um, 
but you've got, what are your priorities in, as you start your new mandate or your new, new job as, as CEO of Explore Waterloo, what are your priorities for the organization and for the industry here in Waterloo region? One of the biggest things that uh, we're working on right now is product development, specifically for leisure visitors. Uh, and this is a, a great, if you have to have a gap in what you do in tourism, this is where you want to have the gap because you don't necessarily have to have a lot of infrastructure to create compelling experiences for leisure visitors. So we were lucky enough to get a grant from uh, the Federal Development Group, um, which is um, a, a a resource, a federal government resource. And what we're going to do with that is work to create purchasable experiences that appeal to our target market so that we can compete better. And so the, this is all about focusing on our strengths. So the strengths in Waterloo region are things like, you know, the whole farm to fork movement. So we, we, we get our food right from our own backyard. And this is a huge movement that we can create and build incredible packages around it for visitors. Um, we're blessed with a plethora of trails that uh, we can create experiences around um, that can be used for hiking, for cycling. Um, I understand motorcycling is has a lot of potential for our area, but there's also the whole cultural piece and the Indigenous piece that hasn't been looked at yet. So what we want to do is create these experiences that are so cool that people are going to want to book right now, that we're going to get off the bucket list that they uh, we can charge a high price point for them so the revenue is flowing into the area and that these experiences are so exciting they're going to get us on the covers of magazines and newspapers and people are going to be inspired by it so we're going to there's going to be a lot of community engagement going forward where we can have visioning sessions and do asset mapping what do we have in the region and what can we combine together that's going to be so exciting that people are going to book right now so um we're definitely going to come to you and the best waterloo group and uh, get all your creative ideas and other groups all across uh, the region so excited about that so that's one of the, the big things that we're working on well you know th- that's so important uh, as as we think about every sector needing to recruit and retain talent because what we've seen right across the board is um, you know living in an area doesn't necessarily mean you have to work in that same area um, so we we do need to understand that we are uh, in a position where we have to attract and retain talent and the things that animate our community whether it's and we're going to have Alex uh, Mustakis on from from Drayton Entertainment uh, uh, later in the show but whether it's theater or arts, culture, trails, uh, in, you know, di- in other experiences like like in Indigenous history, there is a ton to do in Waterloo Region, and I don't mm-hmm. think we've even scratched the surface. And frankly, I'm not sure even we're aware. I've lived here for 50 years. There's a great many things I still don't know about that. What is um, what are great opportunities uh, for for both residents, but also those coming in from outside. So we'll look forward to working on that together. Listen, uh, we got about uh, three and a half minutes before we have to go to the news break, but I wanted to um, ask, what are what are some of the fun things you're really looking forward to this summer? Your first summer here, there's lots of festivals are making a return, music, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's it's uh, festivals and, and, and activities. Tell us about your you know, top five that you're really looking forward or top six this summer? Oh gosh. That's uh, there's one that I'm hearing about. That sounds so cool. Um, in St. Jacobs, they're talking about doing a hot sauce festival. I mean, how yes. cool is that? Like, now that's unique. 
Uh, and they're also they're also having these night nights at the festival with strawberry socials planned and things. Now, to me, that that sounds pretty cool. Um, and I don't know about you. One of the things I've missed the most during the pandemic has been live music. Yeah. Um, concerts are kind of my thing, and I understand this is the place to be for it. And this summer, you've got blues fest, you've got jazz fest. There's right. going to be a world music festival. I mean, there sounds like there's something like every weekend coming up. So I'm excited about all of those things. Uh, and anyone can go on our website, explorewaterloo.ca, for uh, a ton of ideas. We put them out uh, on pretty much on a weekly basis. We update our events calendar. And I think the unique part of the festivals you talk about, jazz festivals in Uptown Waterloo, there's the Rib Fest, I think, is making a return yep. in, in Victoria Park. Cambridge has its own uh, um, its own festivals in, in Cambridge and Galt. There's the Walking by the Grand River uh, in Cambridge. Uh, Kitchener uh, down, um, I think it's the, their, their uh, car, um, or vintage car. I mean, you take a pick, and there's things going on even in just in, within neighborhoods. Um, uh, the Belmont Village area will have live music and and uh, some outdoor barbecues that Chef D's part of. There's things to do. You have you to don't... come and work for us, Ian. I, know. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm excited to get back out too. You remember, we've all been stuck inside and not doing much of anything for two years. So it's it is an exciting time. Uh, that website again. And I think the thing to do is either get on a list where you get regular updates yes, or yes. check back at the website. Cause there's more and more things that are coming online now, as people are cautiously optimistic, they can put time and effort into the community events and other things and that they're actually going to take place, but tell people where they should, can go to find that. They can go to explorewaterloo.ca and follow us on all our social channels, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, and uh, if they go on right now, they can read about uh, the taste of the countryside that's going on where all the meals in the countryside feature maple. So um, who wouldn't want to do that? Sounds great to me. <laughs> all right. Stick stick around. We got a, a, just on the other side of the break. We're, we got a few more things to cover off, uh, but we'll, we're going to take a quick break. This is Kitchener's Kitchener Today on City News 57. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We continue our conversation with Michelle Saren. She is the brand new CEO of Explore Waterloo. Michelle, uh, before the break, we talked about, uh, uh, you know, your, the things you're, gonna, you're trying to accomplish with a new organization and, and all the exciting things to do in Waterloo Region. But one thing, and I, I, I as, as some of my, uh, some may know, I, I t- went with my daughters to Halifax uh, for March break, because my daughter, oldest daughter, is going to Dalhousie University in Halifax. So we decided to go and check out where Hannah was going to be uh, hanging her hat. And I must say, I've been to Halifax five times. All of them never left the airport. I've either gone <laughs> to transfer or been, you know, fogged in or weather related getting into Halifax. But I'd never mm-hmm. been to the city. Gorgeous city. And so you've traded, and I guess I this is the question for you. You've traded one of the hottest spots in the country. Probably the number one growth spot in the country now is, is the uh, Ham, or Halifax Regional Municipality. And I met with your friend Patrick Sullivan, who's the president of the Halifax Chamber of Commerce when I was there. For the, the second fastest growing part of the country, which is Waterloo Region, what, what's, uh, what would you say your, the differences are or, or the similarities maybe? Well, I think they both have uh, great reputations as places of innovation and being on the move and being exciting. 
Um, what I love about Waterloo Region is the, the whole tech vibe and, and, and the culture of innovation here. It seems infused everywhere you look. I find that quite exciting. And I think it's a great opportunity, particularly when we're going after meetings and conventions. There are so many people here that can be ambassadors to help us find business. And everybody seems amenable to it as well. Um, we can work with economic development. We can work with the private sector. We can work with academia. And these people can be ambassadors to help us bring meetings and conventions in here. Um, a lot of people don't know that tourism can be a catalyst for trade. Um, back in uh, 2018, Deloitte did a study for Canada, and they said for every 1% increase in visitors to the country, it can mean $830 million in future trade over the next two years. And I think Waterloo Region is in an incredibly great position to, to leverage that type of ideology, um, just because it's an expert in fintech, advanced manufacturing, uh, high-tech. There's so many industries where we have that advantage to get these meetings and conventions. We can showcase our thought leaders to the people coming in and they can show and they can bring their best practices. And when people come for meetings, they see what they see. They might like to move here, invest here, send their kids to school here. So and all because they they came for a a meeting or a convention or a leisure visit. So it makes sense that we work together. Well, uh, Halifax's loss is Waterloo Region's gain. <laughs> We're so happy that you're here. Last question I've, I've asked everyone who's been on the show over the last four or five weeks. COVID has impacted everyone differently. Um, how we've reacted to it, how we come out of it. Um, and I kind of asked this open-ended question. How, what, are, what are some of your observations, either personally or professionally, from the last two years? Professionally, I think, well, we... In tourism, we always focused on going after the most high yield markets. The farther away you come, the longer you stay, the more you spend. I think we're always going to have to have one foot in the local market because for the past two years, it's been the local market that's provided life support to our industry. So I think we always have to keep an eye on resident well-being, what they're interested in, in in terms of tourism in their own backyard. So I, I think that's uh, I think that's critical. And I think we all have to be mindful that strategies are not long-term anymore. They have to be reviewed on an annual basis. If not, well, when COVID started, they were being reviewed on a weekly basis. Yeah. So I think we all learned that, uh, that, that pivot was the key word for uh, the, the past two years. Absolutely. Listen, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank uh, really, I've, I've really got appreciated getting to know you and and your the 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 strength and the the wisdom you bring to our best Waterloo group is uh, is extraordinary. So uh, thank you for joining us today. We'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks. Have a great weekend, Ian. All right. We've been joined by Michelle Sarin. She, of course, is the CEO of Explore Waterloo. It's time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we will be joined by Alex Mostakis, and he is the creative director at Drayton Entertainment. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We're now joined by the inimitable Alex Mostakis, and he, of course, is the CEO of Drayton Entertainment. He is an also the creative director and an actor in his own right, and a very good one, I might, I might add. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. Uh, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me on. I have to tell you, of all the introductions I've ever had, that was the most recent. Yeah, there was. <laughs> you, you spend far too much time with Neil Aitchison. That's all yeah. I have to say. 
Listen, um, glad to have you back on uh, the show. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, in, in a few minutes about the exciting new program you have um, for the theater and for the summer and the options that you're putting for, for folks with their comfort level. But let's start with, for those that don't know, talk about Drayton Entertainment. It is, it is a very impressive growth of this organization. So talk about your theaters, where you're located and, and kind of how it, how it got to where it is today. Sure. Um, you know, the, the, the theater company started in the village of Drayton uh, with its first season and back in 1991. Um, you know, it was uh, a, a brand new fledgling theater and two crossroads in the country. And uh, it has blossomed to be one of the great success stories of Canadian theater with a, a, a circuit of seven uh, live venues around the province. And uh, we've, we've kind of created a you know, uh, a model of sustainability as, um, you know, having multiple theaters and transferring shows from one location to the other. Uh, there's a real cost saving, you know, in, a, in an industry that's not very efficient to, to begin with. Um, so it's just a way to uh, amortize pre-production costs uh, around multiple venues and, and locations and, and, and all the benefits that come from that, right? Uh, you know, a lot of times we, we say uh, the arts have an economic impact. Well, you know, when our, our patrons from, uh, you know, Kitchener-Waterloo drive to Penetanguishing, uh, for example, they're, they're going to eat in a restaurant. They may stay overnight. Um, they're going to put gas in their car. So there, there are the economic uh, benefits. Um, it, it, we have flexible subscription packages, which means, you know, you can buy two shows in St. Jacob's, two in, in Grand Bend, uh, two in Cambridge, uh, uh, you know, one in Drayton, for example. And, uh, and you, you kind of travel the province. So it's... Uh, it's a very unique um, uh, company, and um, and we've been able to do this, believe it or not, without any um, operating subsidy whatsoever from any level of government. Um, so uh, we've got uh, a very strong membership base, uh, great uh, corporate partnerships, of course, and uh, and a, and, a, and a loyal following, which has gotten us through this pandemic, uh, believe it or not. Yeah, and I think that's an important comment to make. It's like our friends at Chicopee Ski Hill Resort. Uh, you know, a great um, asset of the community here in Waterloo Region that gets no government operating dollars. And the same same for you. And and Bill Creighton, who is the CEO there, his brother Bob is a, is an actor and has, oh, has, sure. acted, um, has, has acted with uh, with with Drayton before. And and this is Drayton is real truly a regional a regional asset. So it's not just Kitchener Waterloo, the regional Waterloo, as you say, Drayton into Huron, um, yeah. and uh, So It's an amazing story. One of the things coming out of COVID, and when you and I happened to see each other, actually remarkably enough, for the first time in about two and a half years, at a basketball court at a basketball <laughs> practice. That's right. Just last week. Um, it, it has been a struggle because, and we just had Michelle Saren from Explore Waterloo on the show. Um, hospitality was the first to close and the last to open. It was, it's been tremendously hurt. Um, and you, you, you are one of those foundational partners in the hospitality and tourism sect- sector in Southwestern Ontario, but you, you all are in it together. So tourism is hospitality, uh, meaning restaurants and hotels and theater um, those experiences. Talk about that part of it, of how you fit in with a, as as a as a as a foundational partner of the hospitality and tourism sector here in southwestern Ontario. 
Yeah, obviously, as you said, uh, arts and culture, tourism, hospitality, we're the hardest hit because, frankly, we're in the gathering business. We mm-hmm. bring people together. And uh, as a result of lockdowns and trying to keep people from spreading the virus, you know, it affected us uh, the most. But but we are partners. We, we really are. I think um, our tickets went on sale just to our members this uh, past Friday, and the demand is uh, unbelievable. But you're already hearing them saying, well, we booked a hotel. We're going to travel to this theater. We booked two nights at the hotel. We're, you know, we've made uh, uh, dinner reservations and so on. So it, it is a real collaboration. I've always said that, you know, what, what people see on stage is the icing on the cake for me. It's, it's the entire experience. And, and we do call it the Drayton experience. And, and that's why it's very important to us that we partner with the right, uh, you know, hospitality and, and we encourage you know, um, individuals when they go to Penetang to, to go to St. Marie among the Hurons or the or the Shrine, you know, or Discovery Harbor uh, Museum and, and so on, right? So we want it to be this uh, experience and just, you know, like I said, the icing is a great show on that on that stage. So we we are all in it together and it's, uh, we've all suffered. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, yeah, I think you're a golfer, right? Uh, I'll give yeah. you, I'll give, I'll give you an analogy of what it's felt like, you know, you, it's, it's uh, par three, and your first shot, you land in the sand trap, right? And you go into that sand trap, and you're on you're on your fourth shot to get out of that sand trap, but you won't give up because you want to get on the green, and that's what it feels like, right? Uh, but you know, I'm I, obviously we're all seeing a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. We're not out of this yet, uh, but we're going to be very cautious in our our uh, reopening and our, our recovery. So maybe let's go there because I do want to spend some time on on what your what your series that, or, or your program and the number of shows you have because there's some great ones and I'm I'm yeah. I'm already ticking some boxes with my daughters <laughs> about where we're gonna go and awesome. when, when we can we can order them. But this pandemic, if it's told us anything, is everyone has experienced it differently. Everyone, as we come out of this this uh, or reopen recognizing there's going to be ways everyone's going to be at a different stage in their what they're comfortable with what i found fascinating and think remarkable actually good marketing as far as i'm concerned is you've got three or four different options of of how people can experience the theater when they go back so maybe talk about what those are because i think it's fascinating that people can can say what's my comfort level and there's an experience at at a drayton theater that will suit me Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the first thing to note is that we didn't make a unilateral decision to say this is what we're doing. We've actually surveyed and polled our uh, stakeholders, our audience base, uh, a number of times. And and most recently, we received in 24 hours over 6,000 responses. And so it gave us an understanding of uh, the various uh, comfort levels. So that's what we planned early in the early in the season. Uh, we're providing you know, maybe a couple of shows a week that you still have to show a proof of vaccination, um, a couple of shows that are just reduced capacity, just so we can all breathe a little. And and then there are some, for those who um, have no issue, uh, there are full capacity as well. And, and the other thing is we've kind of layered it. So over time, you know, we're going to diminish some of those opportunities because, because we're hoping, frankly, by, you know, by July, August, everybody's feeling a lot better and, uh, and it's going to take a while. It, it, it's interesting. You know, we are lifting the mask mandate, as the government has, but we're strongly encouraging people to wear a mask, you know, um, but we certainly aren't going to tackle somebody <laughs> because, 
you know, you go down the street and have dinner before coming to us and there's no issues there. You don't have to wear a mask. There's no proof. And it makes it very difficult for our, our front of house personnel, right, to say, nope, you can't come in here because we have different rules. So uh, it's it's about aligning all, all the rules and, and having the same message, which I think is really important because, as you know, there's been a disconnect over time, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, I sit and watch the Super Bowl, 100,000 people um, not wearing masks, screaming, yelling, spilling beer on each other. But I can't have 400 people in my in my auditorium that are following the proof of vaccination or wearing a mask, et cetera. So I, I think moving forward, we really need a unified message um, that it's going to be OK if we all just uh, take care of each other, be, be kind to each other and respect each other's opinion. And that's what we're doing here as well. You know, I, um, the option to, to close the theater is not an option. Right. No. So how do we how do we move forward? Um, because it affects thousands and thousands of lives. Well, and I, I think that's important. I think that's uh, your your friend. I know Greg DeRocher is part of your board of directors and, and yeah. a good friend of the theater uh, at the Cambridge Chamber. Um, but he and I talk often these days and say, re- closing the economy again and closing things up again is not an option. Having said that, we have to be vigilant. We have to be smart about how we stay open and do the things that may or may not come to pass over the coming months. But but as you say, closing down, not an option. One of the other things, and then I want to get to um, into your exciting lineup. I, I noticed, I think you made reference that there's some of your shows you're doing intentionally with smaller groups. So not the big ensemble casts where you might have 20 actors, as an example. You're doing some of them, which are really fun programs, but are smaller with two, three, four actors, which just makes it safer to produce the program in this environment where we're coming out of it? Yeah, well, we want to be fiscally responsible. We want to mitigate risk, obviously. And and we want to keep people healthy, right? Um, our production of Kinky Booth back in 2020 didn't make it to opening night. Um, we have the set. We have the costumes. Actors will be ready to go with, you know, two or three weeks of rehearsal. Um, but I can't really stage it right now because it involved over 45 people from actors on stage, dressers to crew, musicians, et cetera. You know, it's a lot of large numbers. And, and that's what I'm, I'm fearful of. And, and we do have to be careful because, um, you know, if, if an audience member uh, tests positive, they can miss the show. It's okay. And, you know, if, if a staff member <laughs> tests positive, they can go home. Um, my worry still is about actors on stage. So the more you have, the more likelihood something's going to happen. And, and, Unfortunately, you just can't in a three week rehearsal period, you, you, you can't rehearse understudies and the added cost yeah. of understudies and so on. So there's still challenges ahead. Um, but I, but I, I think allowing for, uh, you know, as much flexibility regarding audience capacity uh, based on personal choice is a, is a great way to go. And, uh, and, and as you say, the, you know, closing the theater down is no longer an option. We, we just yeah. have to keep moving forward. Listen, uh, let's say we've buried the lead far too long. Tell us about <laughs> the, the, the programs or the the, uh, the shows that you've got planned for this summer, because it's an exciting array. Well, uh, as you know, there's there's seven theaters around the province and uh, we transfer uh, some some productions. But uh, we're, we're excited about the, um, the this area for sure. Uh, I mean, as uh, as all the areas, but the St. Jacob's uh, Country Playhouse is going to I thought I would open with a, a bigger musical um, just because, 
you know, we need music in our lives and we need some great music and a lot of fun. It's a night of escapism. So we're doing the ABBA musical Mamma Mia, uh, which I'm, I'm sure your daughter has already picked that one. <laughs> that's right. on the top of the list that was number yeah, one yeah exactly and and i think that's going to be a a fun show to open the season in saint jacobs followed by a a five what we call a five-hander uh called the sweet delilah swim club about these five women that return to the same cottage every year and it's about their lives and you know about men in their lives etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's again it's it's a comedy and we've we've spent two years not laughing and it's time to laugh again Right. Because if we don't have laughter in our lives, I don't know what we have left. Right. So uh, and then in the fall, we're doing a a classic uh, drama uh, called uh, Driving Miss Daisy, uh, Uh as uh, as you recall, that uh, famous film as well. And as a topical show uh, later in the fall is a a show called American Sun. And it deals with, uh, again, a drama deals with uh, the racial issues that we've all been um, looking at over the past few years as well. So I'm, I'm very excited about that one. And then we're going to end with our, our family panto, our annual panto. This time it's Wizard of Oz, the, the panto. And I have to tell you, it's the one that always leads the box office. And, and because we find there are three generations that actually come together, right? The, the kids, the parents, and the grandparents and something they enjoy. Uh, and that one, I'm, I'm glad it's at the end because it gives us more time to get through <laughs> through all this and because it's audience particip- participation the kids need to boo the the villain and cheer the hero and and the actors run through the audience etc cetera, etc cetera. so we're we're we're, ex- we're excited about that and uh, those as were, our, yeah those were those were always some of my daughter's favorite ones when the three of us could boo the appropriate person and cheer the right, right person and 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 as you say have that audience participation listen well i listen i've been booed on stage many times and i wasn't even in the pantry <laughs> I don't believe that for one second. You're an awesome actor. Listen, uh, so we don't miss this. I would take this opportunity. Where do people find uh, ordering tickets? I assume mostly online. Where do people go to find what what you're offering this summer? Totally. I would go on our website at DraytonEntertainment.com or whichever your favorite theater is. If it's the Drayton, you can go to DraytonFestivalTheater.com or the St. Jacobs Country Playhouse.com. It'll get you to the same site. And that will... uh, the schedule will be there. The information about the shows, the the, uh, the capacity levels and the protocols, etc. And uh, um, you'll be able to book online or just call the box office. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Stick around. We got a, we have a few more questions for you just after the break. We will take a quick news break. This is Kitchener's Kitchener today on City News Five Seven. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We continue our conversation with Alex Mostakis. And, of course, he is the CEO of Drayton Entertainment. Uh, Alex, before the break, we talked about your exciting new new shows and the excitement around getting people back in the theatre um, and how important that is to not only you as a business but the, the, the hospitality um, sector as a whole. One of the things we talked about, uh, as I said, a, a week or so ago was Having that, and you talked about it, the unified message that we that we 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 can communicate with our customers, and this is in your industry as well as many others, and that there's a coherent plan for the inevitable ups and downs because we're not past COVID, but we have to learn to live with it. And I think that's really important um, for all business as a business imperative. What does that mean to you? 
Well, I'll tell you, a few weeks ago, I appeared before a House of Commons Standing Committee on Arts and Culture. And one of the last questions I got was, um, what's your biggest challenge? And I said, aside from COVID, it is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to plan. I don't know how to budget. I don't know how to guarantee work. I have no insurance should a lockdown happen again, et cetera. And, and I said, oh, we need a unified message. Um, and, you know, as, as you know, all this has been polarizing, right? And one, one of my favorite expressions or, or a phrase that I saw over the last year, somebody wearing a T-shirt that said, uh, don't let your Google search get in the way of my medical degree, right? <laughs> Everybody's an expert. Um, so we do, we, we, we need a message right from the top, right. That, uh, that, that talks about getting through this. We're not going to close down and we are going to have the highs and lows. And, and this is the plan for it, uh, as well. Um, because as I said, shutting it down is, is not an option. Um, we're important to the community. It's, it's one thing I've learned over the last two years from our stakeholders is, is how much they miss that live communal experience and, and being together, um, you know, and it's as important as our health system, right. As our libraries, as our, our ski hill at Chicopee, right. Um, it's all about a balanced community and, and we, we've all gone through this together, but it's time to, you know, keep our heads high and, and take one step at a time. Well, I think that's that's important. Just that that uh, as we're getting tired, and we we said with uh, Dr. Wendy Lee right off the top of the show, is we may be tired with COVID, but it's not tired with us. So it's still around. And and I think my observation would be for businesses and individuals that are tired and cranky, the one thing, the only thing worse than having maybe having to have a mask mandate or do some other things, come back is to actually close down. So anything short of closing down, I think we can work with to make sure that we can get back together and, and certainly get our hospitality and tourism sector going. Listen, we got about 90 seconds left. Um, and I've asked this of everyone who's been on the last four or five weeks uh, on, on these Friday afternoons. COVID's impacted everyone differently. Everyone's experienced it differently. What, are, what have you learned or what observations do you have either personally or professionally over the last two years? Well, I think, uh, first of all, when it comes to uh, our industry, right, we've realized how important it is uh, to our community and to individuals. Uh, That's really important. I've also learned that we need a new world of kindness and respect, respect for uh, uh, others' opinion, right, that there is social discourse, that that we can talk about things and and, and not throw things at each other, right? So... uh, and, and honestly, it's been too long since we've been able to laugh, right? And, and we all need to laugh. And in fact, you mentioned Neil Aitchison earlier, and, and we are doing his show, a new version of his show called Sorry, I'm Canadian, as his alter ego, uh, uh, the RCMP officer. And uh, you want to talk about laughter and the Canadian songbook, uh, I encourage you to come to Drayton uh, uh, to see that production in, uh, in June. Listen, thanks so much for joining us. I know how busy you are, but great to hear uh, that we're on the way to recovery with Drayton Entertainment and the whole hospitality sector. Appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thanks, Ian, and thanks for everything you do for our community. It's, uh, Appreciate, it. Appreciate we've, it. We've enjoyed our good friend, Alex Mostakis. He is the CEO of Drayton Entertainment. It's time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we'll be joined by Glenn Wright, and he is uh, going to join us uh, on Kitchener Today on City News 570. 
Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We are joined by my good friend, Glenn Wright. He is the chair of the Council for Clean and Reliable Energy. He's an old family friend, but he's also um, um, one of my old bosses because he, uh, and I shouldn't say old, one of my former bosses um, when I worked at the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board. Really smart uh, person uh, on all things um, public policy. But Glenn, Thank you for joining us uh, on the show today. Appreciate you taking the time. That's good to be with you, Ian. Now, one of the things that, that we wanted, to, and, and you and I talk often about this, and as we come into a, a provincial election, all of the issues around energy and new industry um, uh, and, and power generation, climate change, uh, they become political. And I don't think there's a coherence be- between all of those issues. And I guess that was one of the reasons if, if, or I guess I'm asked the question, is that one of the reasons that you formed the Council for Clean and Reliable Energy is to have that, that full discussion around these issues? Yes, uh, we started back in 2005 and uh, the majority of the, uh, the membership is from, there's academics, there's uh, uh, industry leaders, uh, former industry leaders, there's people from uh, petroleum industry from the energy sector, First Nations, uh, unions, uh, labor labor leaders. And the idea was to provide a forum where open dialogue could take place. Uh, and it's normally we have our roundtables uh, in um, not in the in light of the media in essence, but we have these discussions to, to air the ideas that need to be talked about because when often they get politicized so quickly, um, long-term problems don't do well in political campaigns. And uh, so anyways, we started uh, back when the, you know, the closing of coal and the necessity for that and and that sort of thing. But uh, recently uh, our concern has dramatically moved towards the failure to integrate energy policy across the country with climate policy. Energy production uh, in all its forms is a huge part, and energy consumption is a huge part of the contributor to climate issues. So um, so we're into all sorts of discussions around uh, electrifying transportation, uh, the development of new technologies, whether it's hydrogen uh, strategies and other things. There's lots of things going on. But there's no, our biggest concern is that there's no overriding strategy or collective vision between the provinces and the federal government that has a unified front. Everybody's going off on their pet project, but they don't integrate really well. Um, I could give you an example of that. Uh, Some municipal councils have passed support of a resolution that was sent to them saying we should no longer use natural gas to heat houses and buildings. And um, it's an admirable thought, but if you did it in the city of Toronto, for instance, you would, it would take as much to replace with electricity. It would take as three times the amount of electricity we now produce in the entire province to provide the heat replacement for natural gas in Toronto. So there has to be an overall strategy and it has to be some reality. we, we desperately want to see climate change addressed, 
And we believe that one of the keystones that it has to be a, an understanding collectively and a shared vision of energy policy. Yeah, it, and you know what? It was interesting. I think the federal government released its latest uh, uh, climate targets and, and a big chunk of that is the oil and gas sector. Um, and it was interesting. The sector itself said the reduction is meant to be 42 percent, um, I think, by 20, 2030. Um, they've said right off, we, we can do the first 30 percent of, of that reduction. It's the last tw- 12 that becomes really problematic. And, and I guess the context of this is affordability of electricity for both consumers and for business to keep you know, families going and business going the climate change targets, um, and then the energy mix. Like, I mean, one of the things I think I said to you, and because you're much more versed in these things, I said, well, why don't we sign an agreement with um, uh, Manitoba as an example? And you said, well, how are you planning to get the power from Manitoba to Ontario as an example, which is hydroelectric? A lot of these things sound good on paper, but are very complicated. Are those the types of discussions of, you know, what are the real solutions and, and, and trying to, to get people thinking in a different way and, and not politically? Yeah, I, I think that our, our first lift on this would be to say that there should be some common view uh, at, the, at the senior leadership level uh, and that the strategies as they're unfolded should knit together. Um, you can't, like, for instance, uh, what most people don't realize is this the, the electric car um, so, uh, uh, projections are that we'll have a we're going to produce a lot of electric cars here in the province and uh, and and uh, sell them in other places, but also have them on our roads. And there's some uh, fairly aggressive views of those. Uh, right now, the infrastructure for um, most distribution systems, like Toronto and other cities won't sustain the kind of the, the delivery of the kind of energy that has to be delivered to charge the cars. So a lot of neighborhoods, if you were to hook up a whole block full of electric cars, you could uh, have a brownout in that area. I mean, the wires and the infrastructure, the transmission lines, the city of Toronto desperately needs new transmission lines coming in, but nobody can agree on where they're going to come from. We need to have about three times as much electricity produced in the province and just in moderate concerns over the next 15 years to meet some of these needs. Uh, right now, there's nothing being built. Uh, there's a fair bit of talk about small modular reactors. There's investments being made, but the there is no accepted technology at this point. It's, it's still you know a work in progress. So there's, there's some real issues around are we going to actually get realistic deliverables? I mean, how many times have we heard the, the phrase aspirational goals? I mean, aspiring to do good things is wonderful. Doing good things is actually much more productive. Listen, we had um, I, I, uh, both Andrea Horvath from the NDP and Stephen Del Duca uh, for sessions that are, that are, chamber the greater Canadian chamber held on the provincial leader series i asked them both a, a similar question connecting energy production with climate change with the environmental issues as well as en- energy usage and, and one and our friends from toyota were there we had so senior senior director from toyota and and to your point 
Uh, he said, look, we, we're, we're excited. We're, we're all in on electric vehicles. We got 15,000 charging stations in Ontario right now, notwithstanding your comment about, you know, people charging at home. And he said, if we were going to hit the targets that the government wants for, for the, the number of new electric vehicles um, over the next 10, 10 years, they or 15 years, I think, he said, we would need literally mil- two to three million charging stations just in Ontario alone to have the infrastructure to support that in homes and in communities. Uh, so his comment was, I think what you're saying is we got to think this through because we need the infrastructure. If you're going to have people buy those cars, let alone the, the electricity that, that it's going to need to sustain that. Yeah. I, 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 go ahead. Well, I think, you know, Toyota has a, a view. I read some remarks by the international uh, uh, president of Toyota, and um, they said North America collectively is is infrastructure is not ready for a, a, you know a, an aggressive move to electric vehicles. It's um, what people forget or what we don't address, and it's the mundane part. But the wire coming into your house isn't big enough. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to this, uh, houses may have to have as a basic. Uh, service 300 amps not 100 amps not 200 amps it depends a bit on, on on technology development as we go forward but currently that's one of the views that in fact the cost of trying to prepare your home to charge your electric vehicle or two electric vehicles is substantial and the i mean there's going to have to be technology that turns them on and turns them off there's lots of really cool ideas like your car could end up uh, feeding electricity back into the grid when you're not using it. Like it could become part of the storage system. Tons of really good ideas. The problem is there is not a a collective umbrella of thought and leadership that's pulling all this stuff together in, 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 uh, in a way that actually would meld them into a deliverable. Uh, I really, we really worry about the fact that, it's political between the provinces and the feds. Uh, it, it gets political at city councils. Uh, who wants to vote against a green idea like not using natural gas? But nobody at the, at the table says, well, hey, do we, we, we might need to build 40 new reactors to accomplish it. So there's, there's a, we're, we're, we don't, I want to make it clear about our organization. We do not lobby for any particular technology. What we do lobby for is good governance. Mm-hmm. And we feel that one of the really serious flaws in the current approach to climate change is the failure to provide overall governance and relationships between the levels of government and merging energy policy uh, with climate policy, because you, you know what, you, you, you're living in the north. Are you, you know, are the electric cars going to be good enough at that point for you to get all the way to one of your destinations? Um, there's just so many, so many uh, details that it's easy to make a big, broad statement and say, well, we felt we're dealing with, uh, with the issue of energy because we're going to invest in small modular reactors. You see, it's in the press everywhere. Alberta's on board, Ontario's on board. Great idea. But it's not obvious that it's a complete solution. 
and it's not, you know, and you've got all kinds of issues about how many communities want to have them located in their community, all, all sorts of issues. So um, we worry about uh, the, the, the political processes seem to run substantial interference to collective thinking about long-term problems. Yeah, it, it, it's a challenge. And I, I think as we go into a provincial election where, you know, the, the issues around we need to have, as you as you call it, a, a, a clean and reliable energy is critically important to the economic wealth of Ontario. I mean, this region, one in five jobs is still is still manufacturing. Uh, we still have natural resource based economy, and and even though we want to pivot from that, you know, electricity is is table stakes for keeping our economy going, and, and affordably as well. Um, now, as, as we look to an election, I mean, you, you've been around. Uh, elections and, and no politics. What would it take for this to be more of a comprehensive conversation that isn't, you know, I'm going to do this on climate change. I'm going to do this on production. I'm going to do this on on uh, on consumers like uh, consumer issues like like electric cars because it seems to be seg- or fragmented. And I think that's what I hear you saying is it can't be. You have to talk about all these things at the same time. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a tendency in this, uh, a, a, this problem of climate change is huge and, and, it, and it's uh, staggering, the size of it, right? So when you can't get your arms around the entire problem, uh, you go after some of the, the, the smaller ones that sound good, right? And, and they will form part of the solution. But I do think that we need our, our collective governments. It's not just here, but you know, to give you uh, to reaffirm Ontario, our grid right now is like 96% green, it's non emitting between uh, uh, hydroelectric, nuclear, we, we and our and our um, wind and solar. We're way ahead of a whole bunch of countries and a whole bunch and all the other provinces pretty well. So, but when you have to increase it by one and a half, one hundred and fifty percent, in order to meet some of these future goals, um, you, you're going to have to start actually building stuff pretty soon. It takes ten years or so to build a a, a normal sized, you know, um, nuclear plant. Um, we don't have a ton of uh, hydroelectricity available to us, but we have some. So there's, you know, you mentioned the Manitoba issue. Well. Coming back from Manitoba, it costs as much to put the wires in as it does to build the dam. It's so far away. Um, yeah. You know, you get to Manitoba, you're halfway to you're halfway to British Columbia, right? That's a lot of wires. So we need people to thoughtfully think about infrastructure, energy production, and and uh, decarbonization, and we have to look at them in, in a very unified fashion. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, on the other side of the break, there's lots more to cover off on this, but uh, we're, we'll just take a quick news break and be back with more. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We continue our conversation with Glenn Wright. He is the chair of the Council for Clean and Reliable Energy. Um, Glenn, before the break, we talked, about um, you know what can, can feel like a disjointed conversation, and I wanted to kind of maybe go back on on, on a couple of things that are in, in sort of sequence. We we talk about 
infrastructure needs to be replaced for the future of Ontario's electricity needs. And, and just to kind of go over that for us, that's both the wires, which is the distribution, as well as, as generation, if we're going to uh, deal with our, both our, our environmental greenhouse gas and energy needs in the future. Um, what, so that, that's, that's something that we need to grapple with, and that's tremendously expensive, but we also need to be looking at innovation as well. Are, are, are those things mutually exclusive, or they, can they happen at the same time? If if we don't have innovation and we don't um, adopt and and market uh, good technology improvements, we're not going to make it to a to a conclusion in energy uh, or in climate change because we will fall short. Uh, we need to um, the hydrogen. Uh, the, the development of hydrogen, the, the development of battery storage and, and improving the efficiency. There's a ton of work going on. There's a ton of enthusiasm. I think we can make some reasonable reasonable progress, uh, but uh, we, we won't, conventional approach in and of itself will not solve the problem. And keep in mind that Ontario is probably in an awful lot better shape than many of the others because we're 96% on a clean, a relatively clean grid at this point, whereas the other provinces have a lot more issues to deal with. And uh, BC's in good shape with a lot of hydroelectricity. Um, so, you know, people, if you don't, there's been an international group has put out a report that says if Canada doesn't embrace more nuclear, uh, that we're going to have a seriously difficult time achieving our targets. So, um, I think that the small modular one is a, is a, a new technology that's got a lot of back, a lot of money bet on it, and I think it's 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 a we're optimistic about it, but it's going to take a whole lot of things that we do better and do smarter just around around your own home. You talk, you mean it's, it's transmission lines, it's transmission corridors. Nobody wants the power line to go behind their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you get it? How do you get the vast amounts of uh, power into large urban areas? And you have to develop new corridors. Uh, there's there's a lot of issues, and I think we need we need um, we need leadership. Part of the problem, I think, is that uh, in energy, historically, I talk to people that run campaigns and do all that stuff. Uh, you know what? Uh, Electricity doesn't become a campaign ballot question unless you raise the rates. Well, well, that maybe, and that's that's a question: it is 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 the cost of electricity where it needs to be to, to support the the huge investments? Because I mean, one of the other things we know we need to do more in healthcare, we need to be more in other parts of infrastructure. This is just one component: is are we paying enough for electricity? Uh, whether we sh- whether polit- it's politically palatable or not is another question. Are we paying enough for electricity in the province of Ontario? Uh, in the future, I don't think anybody anywhere is paying what the cost is going to be of electricity. Now, uh, I, I think there are jurisdictions that, that are more uh, market open. In in the U.S. as an example, where market prices are actually better, but they're also in environments where in Florida and California, where solar and wind are more, far more and more efficient than ours. Uh, we made some expensive mistakes paying 60 cents for uh, solar uh, 
and and high prices on wind. Uh, they weren't uh, competitive pricing. We're trying to get over that, but um, I, I I don't know. You know, the the biggest problem is understanding what the price should be based on the fact that we've had so many fingers stuck in the pie. Uh, you know, the government low, you know arbitrarily lowers some of the prices, gives you rebates and stuff. Um, don't know. I, I, I think that my personal view is, is that it wouldn't surprise me that at some point your, your electricity bill uh, is much higher than your, your property taxes. Wow. That's right. But I, I, I take your point. I think uh, leadership's going to be important, both brave and stoic leadership, because there'll be nothing, there'll be nothing as a political winner for, for the tough decisions that need to be made on energy, energy production, uh, and climate change in the environment, uh, but it needs to happen. So thank you for uh, for joining us. Ed. Now, just before I let you go, I've been asking this question of everyone over the last five weeks I've been doing this show. Everyone's experienced COVID differently, uh, and this is just more on a personal note. Um, uh, you know, any any observations or, or thoughts on, on uh, uh, either personally or professionally, of how COVID's impacted or, or your, how it's impacted you and your, and your world? Well, from a corporate point of view, in a number of the things I'm involved in, uh, I think we've accomplished a whole bunch of stuff without being on airplanes to go and see each other, which I think is going to perpetuate, uh, you know, the discomfort and the disruption of, of traveling. Um, on a personal note, uh, the first year of COVID, it's the most time I've ever spent at home. Uh, and <laughs> there was a little part of me that went, you know what, this isn't all that bad in some respects because I forgot to sleep in my own bed for months and months. <laughs> so uh, I used, you know, considering what my schedule used to be like. So I, you know what, uh, I worry about my friends and family, uh, but everybody seems to be getting around me, seems to be getting through it, but it's, I mean, I, what can you say? It's just a whole different world we're living in. Absolutely. Listen, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. I appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks, Ian. We've been joined by Glenn Wright. He's the chair of the Clean uh, Council for Clean and Reliable Energy. We're, that's it. We're done for the day. Thanks so much for joining us today. Many thanks to producer Polly for keeping me on time, executive producer Brittany for uh, booking our guests and take t- dragging me along as they're the pros. I'm not, uh, but I've enjoyed uh, enjoyed uh, this this afternoon and talking to our guests. Look forward to next Friday afternoon. But now we're over to the afternoon news with Aaron Anderson and Paul McPhee.